0: I'm Marty Moskoway, and welcome to The Connection. Kelly Cervantes begins her new book, Normal Broken Like This. Grief sucks. It's also weird. Basically, it sucks and it's weird. It also happens to be an unavoidable part of life. Her book is about her grief before and after the death of her daughter Adelaide in 2019, just before her fourth birthday. Adelaide had been diagnosed with a rare form of epilepsy when she was a baby. Kelly and her husband Miguel were told by doctors when she was three that there was nothing more they could do to help their daughter. It was devastating news. Normal Broken is about Kelly's journey through the messiness of grief. It's both heartbreaking and reassuring. She blogs at Inchstones where she writes about caring for her medically complex daughter and how she and her family have learned to live with their grief. She's also a board member of Cure Epilepsy and Kelly Cervantes, it's great to have you with us on The Connection. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, we're happy to have you here. First of all, so sorry for your loss, and and so pleased you could join us because these are tough conversations to have. I think for many people to talk about grief and death and loss is just really hard to do but it seems for you, it's important for you to be able to blog about this and to write about it and talk about it. How has that helped you heal?
1: Oh my goodness, it's helped my healing immensely. I am a huge proponent of talk therapy. I wouldn't be talking to you today without my psych meds, but there is nothing that helped me to heal more than writing and then sharing that writing. I think through that practice, I mean, there's all sorts of studies that we don't need to get into about how when you write or you share, you're moving thoughts from one part of your brain to another where you can actually process them. But by sharing all of those emotions as well, I learned that I'm just not that special. And I mean that in the kindest way possible. I am special in all of the ways that Mr. Rogers and Sesame Street taught me that I was. Yes, you are. But nothing that I feel or experience is unique to me my story is mine yes but my feelings are normal they are so grief is so normal and and that has empowered me to be able to share and connect
0: well, and I'm glad you said those two words share and connect and what I got from your book and even writing about your life is that yes grief has these various stages but they can come you know, at almost any moment, it doesn't follow this sort of set pattern. First, you're going to feel this and then you're going to feel that. You also write about the fact that your husband just grieved differently from you. Help us understand that. Oh,
1: my goodness. We grieved wildly differently. I am uh, and have always been, as my parents would, I'm sure, tell you, an emotional person. Um, I, I grieved openly. I needed often for my grief to be witnessed, I, I wanted someone to hold my hand. I needed, um, it, I, I had very little control over it. I, I Episodes that I would call werewolfing, where I would be out and the grief would just completely take over. Versus my husband, who grieved very privately, to the point that I didn't even know if he was grieving. And it required us to, A, go to couples counseling, but beyond that, open up the lines of communication so that he could tell me, I I needed him to tell me when he was grieving. And then I also needed to release him from these expectations that he would be present for my grief, because that just wasn't something that he was going to be able to do. But that didn't mean that I couldn't outsource that to a friend the same way that I might outsource you know, fixing the sink. You call a plumber and <laughs> I wouldn't get mad at Miguel if he couldn't fix the sink. So sometimes there are parts of our life w- that you you have to outsource. We put a lot of pressure on our relationships with our significant others that uh, can, be, can be crumbling and is honestly sometimes irrational.
0: How do you hold on to memories of your daughter and I know you do. Um, she died in 2019 so she died 4 years ago. But in the life of a child, you know, what do those years actually matter? How do you think about her today?
1: I try and hold on to the more joyful memories. We had a lot of trauma during her life. She was medically complex. She had epilepsy. Um, it it was it was really hard and um, I, I hold both the, the positive and the the negative and the everyday moments in between. Uh, but these days, I, I try extra hard to lift up the more joyful memories. I love it when people ask me what Adelaide was like mm. because then I get to share the more fun stories about her quirky personality and the tricks she would play and um, and shine a light, perhaps, on how vibrant of a life someone with such severe disabilities can actually have.
0: And how did she express that? How did you know that about her?
1: Oh, my goodness. She... Well, she loved cuddling with her brother, uh, but as soon as he was squeezing her too tight, she would slap him right across the face, (laughs) and she did not have great motor control, so you never quite knew if she was doing it on purpose, um, except I knew she was... Absolutely, doing it on purpose. You could sort of see a look on her face. Um, she also, she, we listened to a lot of music in our house, and if there was ever a, a traditional baby music on, Baby Shark or something of the like, she would kick and she would scream. But the second we put on Frank Sinatra, she would relax and calm <laughs> and open her eyes. So. Don't let nonverbal ever mean non-communicative. She always had a way to tell us what she was feeling or what she was thinking. You just had to know
0: how to look for it. So she liked Sinatra more than Baby Shark? Is that what you're telling us? That is what I, she had excellent (laughs) taste in music. (laughs) Especially for a (laughs) three-year-old. you had to, you had this really difficult diagnosis that you got when she was still a baby um, this this it's a degenerative form of epilepsy and you know I can only imagine the heartbreak of that. How did you grieve when she was alive
1: uh, so she had her first seizure at seven months hmm. she was diagnosed with infantile spasms, which is a, a pretty devastating form of pediatric epilepsy uh, when she was nine months old, we actually didn't discover that it was neurodegenerative until about six months before she passed away. That said, we knew fairly early on. I remember her first birthday and just crying in my bedroom after all of our birthday guests had left because it was starting to dawn on me that she was not going to lead a typical life. I was not going to be sitting in the audience at her dance recital or cheering from the sidelines of a soccer game. We probably weren't going prom dress shopping. All of the things that you sort of look forward to with a child. And that was not going to be our future. So uh, that's actually where my blog title, Stones, came from, it's a, a really common term in the disability community, where instead of celebrating milestones, which may or may not come, certainly not on a traditional timeline, you celebrate all the inch stones that y- you or your child meet to get there. And that was a huge salve to me. During her life to still find things to celebrate. And it was something that I clung to personally as well after she died, my own personal inchstones as I was grieving her, you know, celebrating brushing your teeth, which sounds small, but when you are in the throes of grief, a lot of times you can't remember the last time that you did something as simple as brush your teeth. So uh, it's it's such a, a simple concept, but it really carried me through my grief during her life and and beyond.
0: What did you keep that was hers? And I I asked that. My parents died many, many years ago, and they lived, you know, into their 80s. So it's a completely different experience. sad, of course, but I have in my closet my dad's mattress shirt. It just hangs there. And then my mom's hiking shoes are down in in my pile of shoes on the floor. And just sort of knowing that they're there just gives me a little bit of a lift when I'm trying to figure out what to wear during the day. Uh, What did you keep of your daughter's?
1: Well, I have two very large bins of her clothes and stuffed animals and things um, in a closet in our house. But I also have... um Little ladybug decor that used to be in her bedroom that mm. I've hung on the wall. I have her, so she uh, ate through a G tube in her stomach, and we would hang the pump and the liquid from an IV pole. I still have the IV pole as well, mm. and from that I have the mobile that hung over her uh, her crib as a baby, and a flower crown that one of my cousins made for her um, to wear at her final birthday party that. Um, was put on for us by Make a Wish just um, a week before she passed away, um, but there are signs and pieces of her everywhere in our home. She's she is very much still a part of our family,
0: mm. and it must give you a certain kind of joy to be able to to see it or touch it.
1: It it's everything. I I want her to be present with us. I um my. I have a, a daughter who is alive um Anessa and everything to her she's 4 so everything that is in the past is yesterday and everything that is in the future is tomorrow and she has no real concept beyond yesterday and tomorrow or sure. last it's excuse me it's last night or tomorrow right. and so I kind of like to think of the way we perceive our family in time as last night and tomorrow. Adelaide was with us last night. We'll all be again together again tomorrow. And we sort of lived in this jumbled up middle right now.
0: But what you're saying is that for you, you get comfort living in the present, which is sometimes hard to do. Yeah, absolutely. I I it did I mean to be
1: clear, it took me years to come to a place where sure. I was able to enjoy the present and I mean, honestly, to allow myself to find joy in the present. I think many of us come to a place in our grief where we can see joyful moments happening, but we refuse to let them come into our life we are actively pushing them away um, whether that is out of guilt whether it is out of fear whether it is out of the comfort the comfortableness that we have found in our in our life living with grief Uh, and there has to be some sort of turning point where we make the choice to start healing to allow joy and happiness to coexist with our grief.
0: Well, I want to pick up on that after this very short break. And you're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. We are talking about grief, not an easy thing to talk about. And our guest is Kelly Cervantes. She's an advocate. She's the author of a book we've been talking about called Normal Broken, The Grief Companion for When It's Time to Heal But You're Not Sure You Want to. She's a board member of Cure Epilepsy. And a little bit later on in the show, I'll be talking with palliative care doctor, Dr. Sunita Puri. We'll be right back.
1: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and
0: NPR. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moscow, and talking with Kelly Cervantes. Uh, she has a, a book came out earlier this year titled Normal Broken, The Grief Companion for When It's Time to Heal But You're Not Sure You Want to, talking about the death of her almost four-year-old daughter, Adelaide, in 2019. Kelly, you said some, several things before the, the break that I want to pick up on. One is about guilt, and you write in this book that guilt and grief often go hand in hand. I, explain what you mean by that.
1: Oh well i I personally felt a lot of guilt about things that I could have done differently during her life. I felt guilty for the way her grief consumed me after my life and how that affected the other people who were in my life. I felt guilty for letting joy come into my life as if I I wasn't allowed to feel that anymore because I was here and my daughter wasn't. You could probably find just about any scenario within those first few years after Adelaide died and I could find something to feel guilty about. And it made it very, very difficult to feel like I Deserve to heal, hmm. let alone that I even wanted to.
0: Was it? Just, was it? I mean, just a matter. Was it a matter of time, where you just gave yourself permission to feel okay?
1: There were a couple different events that happened. One was that I attended an incredible grief retreat uh, with other mothers who had also lost children. We lost children at different ages, different times of our lives, all different causes, uh, but being together with those women i realized i that i was very normal in my brokenness that that with those women i i was one with them i could share they could see me and that knowing that i was a part of this community that i wasn't alone And seeing some of them a little further along on their grief and healing journeys allowed me to be able to envision a world where that was something that I could also do. Then there was also a speech given um, the night before President Joe Biden's inauguration. Hmm. He gave a there was a COVID-19 memorial ceremony that he led. And in the speech, he said to heal, we must remember. Now, regardless of your politics, the man knows grief, having he lost does. a baby, his wife, an adult son, uh, and his words, they hit me with such an impact. To heal, we must remember. I had always thought that healing meant forgetting or moving on or leaving behind, letting go. It had never dawned on me. That in healing, I would always remember her. I would it it was about moving forward with my grief. It was about finding a way for grief and joy to coexist in my present and in my future. And that made sense to me because there was no way I was ever going to be able to forget or let go of my daughter. And my grief is what I felt like I had left of her. But grief and love are two sides of the very same coin. So just like I would never stop loving her, I'm never going to stop grieving her. So in remembering her, I am healing. And it's about finding those ways of moving forward and holding on to our loved one and incorporating that grief and that love into this life that we now lead.
0: What did you want? And I'm looking at the clock here. A couple of more minutes, uh, Kelly. But what did you want from friends and from family uh, when you you were going through the the most difficult, most painful parts of your grief? What did you want them to do? What did you want them to say? yeah. Uh, I, I am. I am so sorry.
1: This really freaking sucks. Sometimes that would be enough. That, that would feel and that that feels enough. Closer friends. I had one dear friend who would pick me up and drive me to a workout class I despise working out I hate group exercise even <laughs> you more. and me both yes I guess however it. <laughs> having her pick me up and take me to this class where I moved my body for one hour and then she would bring me home and that was amazing because I got out of the house I felt like I did something I was physical in some way so even if I didn't leave the couch for the rest of the day I had had that one hour where I felt like I was productive and I had done something and you know sometimes a ball in motion getting out of the house for that one hour would give me the energy that I needed to go do something else go run an errand go um be with my son whatever it was that I was lacking the energy for so sometimes it's in it's in the smallest ways that you can help someone, just letting them know that you're thinking about them without expecting anything in return.
0: I've seen fo- photos of, of you and your husband, your son, and, and your daughter. Um, I think there was one of you trick-or-treating or something. Um, and you look like a, you know, so-called normal, happy American family. Absolutely. Well, And I, I would
1: say that we are a very normal happy family um we just have one family member who Hmm. led a not very typical life but in that experience is so much more normal than people realize
0: so when people say how many children do you have what do you say
1: I have three children. My son Jackson is 11. My daughter Adelaide would be eight, but she passed away just before her fourth birthday. And my daughter Anessa is going to be five in February. And I, it has taken me a long time to be able to say that confidently. Uh, I now sort of, uh, it, it. the uncomfortableness resides in the person often that I am speaking to, now if you were to ask my husband that same question, he would gauge the person he was speaking to and how much he wanted to unload on them. Uh, I'm not capable of doing that. <laughs> you get it, you get all or nothing with me. So, well, I <laughs> Buckle your seatbelt, I guess.
0: Well, I appreciate that, uh, Kelly Cervantes, because you know, this, this is a tough conversation and you've you've helped us really think about it, I think, differently and even use language differently. So I I really appreciate you joining us today on The Connection. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. welcome. And again, uh, Kelly Cervantes' book is called Normal Broken, The Grief Companion for When It's Time to Heal But You're Not Sure You Want to. We're going to take a very short break and we've got a second guest who'll be joining us after this short break. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm Marty Moskowain, and you're listening to The Connection here on WHYY, where we discuss how to find meaning and purpose in our lives, where we explore what makes us human and unique. There is a reality that we all share. We're all going to die one day, and so are the people we love. It's easy to postpone conversations about what to do when faced with end-of-life decisions, But that only makes it harder when making difficult choices about things like ventilators and feeding tubes and pain management and heroic measures. Our guest, Dr. Sunitha Puri, talks with patients near the end of their lives and their loved ones about what they want to do about treatment and about their hopes and fears as they face the impermanent nature of life. She's Program Director of the Hospice and Palliative Medicine Fellowship at the University of Massachusetts Memorial Medical Center and at the Chan School of Medicine. She wrote a book a couple of years ago titled That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour. And Dr. Puri, nice to have you with us on The Connection. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really very honored to be here with you. Well, thank you so much. And, you know, I almost hate to begin with the definition. I think people know about hospice. But I'm not sure they understand exactly what a palliative care doctor does. What is your job?
2: Yeah, so that's a great place to start because I think just even the word palliative is hard to pronounce and can be intimidating to hear. I mean, quite honestly, I actually have had patients say, are you from the primitive care team? I was like, (laughs) oh, you know. Um, So... (laughs) Palliative medicine is a subspecialty of medicine that focuses on understanding and relieving the suffering that a patient and their family is going through when they are facing a serious illness. And we work in a team. So I work on a team as a physician with nurse practitioners, social workers, and spiritual care providers, and here actually also a music therapist. Mm. So that each of our individual lenses on the patient is combined to treat their physical suffering, their emotional suffering, their spiritual suffering, and their existential suffering. Which really comes down to questions like, what does it mean to live now that I am sick or impaired in a new way? And we can see patients who are still getting chemotherapy dialysis, even getting bone marrow transplants for potential cures. Hmm. Because our job is to work right alongside other medical teams to improve the patient's quality of life and to really understand what they want for themselves, what they value in their life, what their goals are. So we can modify treatment over time to meet those goals. And And those are
0: I'm sorry to yeah, jump in here. Let me just do a quick follow-up here. But those are really profound questions that you are yes. asking people at, at this really critical moment in their life. And I'm thinking about you walking into a, into a hospital room. You're meeting a patient for the very first time. What's the first thing out of your mouth?
2: So usually the first thing I say is that it's a pleasure to meet you. And then I introduce myself and I explain what i'm here to help them with and usually let's say there's a picture of somebody on the little table next to them i'll try to start by identifying something in the room that has meaning That is clearly there for a purpose. Sometimes I joke around about how, oh, you're a lifesavers guy because there's a big bag of lifesavers on the, the table, or I see a bunch of uneaten Oreos and I ask about those. I really want to start with helping people feel comfortable in my presence because I have to go to a place of deep vulnerability and intimacy with them, sometimes in not very much time depending on their situation.
0: Well, and you also, I'm assuming there are times when you've got family members, loved ones who are there in the same room. Um, how do you find a connection with them?
2: So I think the thing that I have come to learn for myself and about myself is that I have to feel comfortable with where I'm at and confident in what I'm there to do so that I enter the room projecting that, projecting a gentleness, a comforting presence, and a confidence in the fact that I can help them. And I think when you walk into a room inhabiting yourself that way, Mm -hmm. then people are at ease. People can pick up on unease with their doctors. And at some level, that can make them very uneasy. So when I go in and I meet family, I always say a prayer before I go in and I ask God to help me do my best for the people in that room. Um, And when I leave the room, I thank God for helping me to do what I could do for them. And that's my little ritual of preparing myself to go into a situation that I cannot anticipate what I'm walking into and what the outcome is going to be. So I really try to project confidence, gentleness, and a warm presence.
0: Let me just uh, quickly reintroduce you. And uh, that's our guest today on the Connection, Dr. Sunitha Puri. She's a palliative care doctor, in fact, a program director of the Hospice and Palliative Medicine Fellowship at the University of Massachusetts Memorial Medical Center. You're listening to the Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. Let me ask you uh, about your own journey, and I, and I read some of, of this in your book. As a doctor, I'm assuming, so broadly speaking, your job is to save people's lives, is to, is to intervene so that they can uh, continue to live their life. And and as I understand it, you were. You were frustrated with that, even kind of depressed by that kind of work, and it wasn't really sort of meeting what it is that you needed to believe and feel as a doctor. What was going on for you?
2: Yes. So, you know, when I was in medical school, I, I was there in part because I wanted to be just like my mother, who's a very gifted anesthesiologist. And what I saw when I was literally four years old walking around with her in the hospital was that she was ex- she is extremely smart, knows her medicine, but was deeply compassionate with her patients mm. and really cared about them as humans. And you really don't have a lot of time as an anesthesiologist to make a bond with somebody and to gain their trust, to see them through what could be very risky surgery. But I saw her taking that time to want to know her patients. And in medical training, as you said, you're really socialized to focus on disease, not necessarily how someone's life and life circumstances impacts their experience of disease. And I was very much frustrated by, you know, memorizing things spending a lot of time in front of computers more so than i did with patients and i kind of wondered what how there was such a big disconnect between what i hoped to do for people and what i was actually trained to do for people so as you said i was quite demoralized until i did a palliative care rotation at the very end of medical school and i saw that it is possible to be with people who still needed top-notch diagnostic and procedural care but to also know that that was not the only thing that mattered about them and i saw how people how my mentors could really sit with people And again, help them to talk about Mm. things that they weren't even talking to their loved ones about. And by knowing what mattered most to them, seeing how medical care could change. And in residency, you know, I did a lot of things to people in the ICU without necessarily doing things for them that they wanted done for them. And so I really tried to remember that just as I'm learning how to put... IVs in people and put them on ventilators, that communicating with them was equally a procedure that had a way to do it and had a place alongside all the bright and shiny technology. And that was so fulfilling.
0: Well, I I can imagine. And so very different. And I wonder, too, about, um, as you mentioned, the fact that you say a prayer before going into a talk with a patient about So coming to terms, I guess we all have to do this, that Life is finite. We don't get to live forever. You know, things yep. things are transitory and we have to live with that. And as a as a doctor, again, you know, trained to kind of extend life, but also I think as human beings, we want to think we're we're immortal. We're going to go on forever and we don't want to think about dying. Yes.
2: Absolutely. And I think people expect from medicine a real focus on extending life at all costs. So here you have someone coming in, trying to help them balance the hopes they have for their lives with the reality of their illness. And people don't want to think about it, let alone talk about it. And doctors often don't want to think about it, let alone talk about it. And we're not taught how to talk about it. And so you're kind of really balancing both Tensions within individuals and families around grappling with impending loss and the losses they've already gone through during sickness with this greater cultural silence around illness and death. And we have such poor vocabulary for even talking about that. And that doesn't surprise me because if the culture is hesitant to talk openly about things, we will not have the right language for it. And that's where you get a lot of discussions about things like being a fighter and not wanting to
0: give up. And that doesn't really always serve people. Well, I'll tell you what, Dr. Puri, we're going to take a very short break and then we'll get back to our conversation. Again, our guest is Dr. Sunitha Puri. Uh, She is a palliative care doctor. We have much more to talk about after this very short break. Do stay with us. We'll be right back.
1: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from
0: WHYY and NPR. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. We all know we're going to die, yet most of us really don't want to talk about it or think about it. It's only natural, and yet that makes end of life conversations even more difficult. Uh, joining us is uh, Dr. Sanita Puri. She's a program director of the Hospice and Palliative Medicine Fellowship at the University of Massachusetts Memorial Medical Center, also the Chan School of Medicine. And she's the author of a book, of a book titled That Good Night Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour. I mentioned the fact that, you know, these are hard conversations to have. Let's just uh, let's be honest about it. But how do we build up a kind of a language, a vocabulary, so that we can be more comfortable talking about end of life, the fact that we only get a certain amount of time on this earth? Yes. So,
2: you know, I think there are cultural and, dare I say, spiritual components Mm -hmm. to acquiring that language, because I think part of what it means to be human is to be mortal. Sure. I don't know what humanity would be (laughs) if we we lived forever, right? And so I think from a spiritual sense of things, it doesn't even matter what religion or tradition you're part of, just the fact of having a finite life, if we can really think about that and move deeply into that and what it means for us as people... That that in and of itself is a wonderful place to start with simple language and questions like, what does my life mean to me? What were to happen if things suddenly changed for me? And when you start with the simplicity of those tough questions, you start to acquire a language that is not quite the abrasive this binary between fighting and giving up, being a winner against disease or a loser against disease. And I think when people start with that gentleness, they have a bit more compassion about how they'd actually face serious illness and the end of their lives.
0: Well, I would think, too, that having this conversation with family, with loved ones, even with oneself, well before you're in your hospital bed and you have to make, or the family has to make, some pretty momentous decisions that to have this early on begins to kind of set the stage for what a good death? Is there such a thing as a good death?
2: So I think that concept is a really interesting one because I think if you ask most people, ideally, how would you like to die? People talk about going in their sleep peacefully or being at home in their bed surrounded by loved ones. Mm -hmm. And that for many, I think that's a cultural trope that we have around what a good death is. And yet I think that for many people that good death may be out of reach and that may not be how they define Mm -hmm. a good death. So when I used to do hospice work in South Los Angeles, I saw a lot of people who felt that the best death would happen in the hospital where they're, they would be cared for professionally and not by their scared children who didn't know what to do. So I think that notion is extremely complicated. But if you boil things down, I think most people... Most people I talk to define at least this as part of a good death, to not suffer. Hmm. And I think that word suffering is an extremely powerful place to start thinking about what would matter to you if you got sick. How much suffering would be too much? How do you think about suffering? And have you seen, this is often a way into these conversations that I encourage people to use let's say you're fine and healthy right now and you just lost a loved one to you know, lung cancer. I always encourage people to reflect on what would matter to them if they were that sick because mm-hmm. you have an immediate example of someone you love who's going through suffering. And it's a moment and it's a way in. And we shy away from it because we're so scared. But if we see loss around us, As an opportunity to move deeply into what our life means, what it would mean if we were the ones with lung cancer, Mm. what we would and wouldn't want for ourselves based on the choices your loved one made. I think it's an external consideration that's often still theoretical, but it's such an important place to start. And that word suffering is one we do not use enough in medicine or in our culture.
0: And there's so many components to suffering. There's, of course, the physical suffering, the pain of suffering. There's the psychological part of suffering, perhaps the loneliness or things either said or not said, as you mentioned, the kind of spiritual suffering as well. Yes. I mean, you know, it's suffering can reveal itself in, in so many different ways.
2: Absolutely. And there's the suffering of people and there's the suffering of their families. And then there's this really interesting dynamic that happens often where people want to shield their suffering to protect their family from further suffering, and the family wants to protect their loved one from their own suffering. So you can get into situations that are extremely complex in terms of the dynamics of people really feeling like they can be open about what's tough for them and how, whether or not they can go on or what they need to be able to go on. And so... It's a really like I think, you know, I go in often as a complete stranger and I'm asking someone to be deeply vulnerable and and essentially take me to the core molten center of their humanity right like within a few minutes. And sometimes they can do that more easily with a stranger than with their own family. And so you get mm -hmm, you get into an interesting space where part of my role can become helping them to say what has remained silent, asking them in front of their family, can you tell, you know, your wife and your son a bit about what you and I talked about yesterday? Um, And so you get all sorts of surprising permutations on the human experience, emotionally and otherwise, of serious illness and dying and what it means to live well, because you're still living as you're dying and you can have some say in that.
0: Well, and I'm glad you said that because I, I, I scribbled down the word choice just because, yes. <laughs> you know, how important that is in terms of feeling at least some modicum of control near the end of life. Yes. I've been with people as they're dying, even people who prepared to die, um, but you never fully prepared. I mean, you know, death, I think, as you have said, is is never neat. It's never, I think it's it's rarely the way people planned it out.
2: I think that's absolutely true. And I think we are so used, many of us in, in our society are used to having control over what happens into our life or wanting desperately to have control and a say in situations that are often out of our control. And I think I'm going to say two things about this this particular issue, which mm-hmm. is that we try very hard to empower people to think about their choices to document their choices and yet i always tell people i mean actually i often tell people i won't say i always say this but in some situations where i can really feel that desire for control is palpable and a part of their suffering i always try to normalize the fact that even though we are offering you a complete say in how this may unfold, I also want you to know it is very normal, despite the best planning for things not to go the way you wanted them to. Mm -hmm. And that uncertainty is a part of what I will hold you through, because that's really what it means to be a palliative care doctor is an uncertainty specialist. And so as much as I want to give people say and voice and support them, I have to make the caveat that ultimately death like much of life, is unknowable and uncontrollable. And that's why if you're in the hospital and you're very sick and we're trying to get you home on hospice hospice to have the death you wanted, I always tell this, I do always tell families, I don't know what's going to happen between now and the time you could get home. And if you get so sick, That I wouldn't put, if you were my mom, I wouldn't put you in an ambulance to get home. I will keep you here and make you comfortable, and your family can be with you. But I'm saying that we have to have the plan A, which we hope for. I'd be remiss if we didn't have a plan B and something suddenly changes.
0: Let me pick up on something you said, that sometimes it's easier for people to talk to you I mean, a professional, but a stranger about what they want, these sort of profound things that they want, rather than their family. And is that because with family, there's history, there are patterns of, of relating to each other, which sometimes get in the way of these difficult but important conversations?
2: Yes. And I think I wonder how many people have had the experience of having something, having gone through something really challenging, And being able to tell the stranger sitting next to you on an airplane more about it than your own family members. And I think that's the dynamic at play, that they know also as a doctor, you're kind of like a priest in some ways, you know, especially at this stage of life. Everything they tell me mostly stays with me, especially if they swear me to secrecy about certain things that they want to talk to me about that they haven't talked about with their family. And it can become a type of confession and a very spiritual contemplative space. And so I think part of what it means to welcome everything into the space of a palliative care consult is to welcome this too, that you may know things that their family doesn't. And I'll often ask them, you know, it is amazing that you've been vulnerable and it's an honor to share this with you. Is this something that you feel I can help you tell your family? Because I'd be happy to do that. And the other people on our team, like our social worker, spiritual care providers, we have a whole army of people who can help you. Mm -hmm. So is this something that you need us to help you say? Or is this really something you just need me to know so I can explore it further with you as new choices arrive on the horizon for you?
0: Well, I'm thinking the the intimacy of these conversations, that of, of being with an individual or their family, as as they have to make some of these tough decisions. What do you do when you see pretty, you know, profound disagreements between siblings about what to do about yes. mom or dad, um, and maybe what mom or dad wants is different from what the family wants? How do you navigate that?
2: This definitely happens. And I was in a situation yesterday where there was quite a bit of tension between different family members over next steps for a very sick person in the ICU. And, you know, I always try to remember that I am stepping into a story that is a bunch of complex characters, entangled and, and interweaved storylines. So I am the new character at the eleventh chapter of twelve, and I always try to remember that you know families are dynamic and complex, and they are going to live with the aftermath of this in the way in a way that I won't. That said, if there are things that are being pushed for by family that are explicitly not what a patient wants, I always start from a place of curiosity Hmm. and ask them. I think number one, I mean, I should have said that off the bat, but the first thing, the way, if I had to put a word into my approach, it would be curiosity and non-judgment, because people are complex and you put them under the stressors of being sick or facing death and they Their multiplicities become brilliantly visible. And so when I'm with a family, I always try to understand where they're coming from in the disagreement with their loved one or disagreements amongst each other. And that's where you can kind of get a little bit more context. So let's say it's a brother and sister at odds with their aging mother who has dementia, you know, and one person says, we need to do everything possible. And the other says, you know, I'm the one with her all the time. And you're, you know, flying in from California, and or whatever the situation is. And I try to kind of hold that space for them to talk with each other, but also to challenge where appropriate. And to say, you know, it sounds like your mom actually put a lot of thought into some of what she would want to spare you, the guessing game. And that's why she has, for example, an advanced directive. Can you talk to me about why you're seeing this situation differently than your mom might? And I, I think when there's a lot of disagreement, I invite the person back into the room. And I say, you know, of all the all the things we've talked about, if your mom was sitting in the chair next to you and listening to this, what do you think her immediate reactions would be? What do you think she would say? And I think that's a very powerful way of helping people step aside and put aside their disagreements sometimes, not always, sure. and yeah, and allow the person a voice.
0: And allow them a voice. And you're listening mm-hmm. to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. Just a couple of more minutes, uh, Dr. Puri. When someone is dying and you're with them, can you assume that they're hearing what's going on in the room, what people are saying? either to each other or to them?
2: Yes. So, you know, hearing, as far as we know, is the last sense to shut down Uh when somebody is dying. And so I think there's two components to this. One, what they can really hear and intake and what they can understand. So I am of the opinion that medically, but also very much spiritually, people know when their loved ones are there. Hmm. It's the familiarity of your presence. It's the timber of your voice. You know, they very much can feel when somebody's in the room. And I've seen this, you know, with even just watching the heart monitors, somebody whose heart rate is really high because they might be anxious or in pain and they can't talk to us because they're very sick or they're dying. The heart rate goes down when you hear... When family come in the room and mm-hmm. either touch them or hear their or their she, they're hearing their voice and they're comforted. And so I tell families your presence is pain relief because you know you, you are someone that has been a fixture in this person's life and they know that. And even though they can't talk back to you, they can take in what you're saying. And I think we know even from like near death experiences, when people describe what they've gone through, a lot of them talk about hearing what was going on in the room and they do remember that. Wow! So I very much think here, I think near-death experiences, I could talk about that for a very long time. <laughs> I would but, like to, know.
0: but we don't have the time and I would love <laughs> I to know. do that. But uh, in fact, I got to jump in here only because we are out of time. And uh, Dr. Sunitha Puri, thank you so much for joining us today on The Connection and thanks for your, your work. It's so important. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. And again, uh, Dr. Sunitha Puri wrote a book a couple of years ago, and it's titled That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour, and she's a palliative care physician. That's it for today's edition of The Connection. You can always download a podcast of the show wherever you get your podcasts. Charlie Kyer, the engineer for today's edition of the show. It's produced by Debbie Builder and Paige Murray-Bessler. I'm Marty Moscow Wayne. Thank you so much for joining us.